Well, good morning. My name is Jim. Um, it's a pleasure to see all your faces here. For those of you that are joining us online for the first time, uh, thrilled that you're there. We certainly hope it is not your last time. Um, <clears throat> we are in part five of a series called You're Not Far. Uh, we've got a lot to cover today, so I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, here's something that uh, I'm sure you've noticed, that I've noticed, that I find it kind of interesting, and this isn't something that we notice in just a few people. We, we, I tend to notice this kind of across the board with, with all people, and, and it, it's this. It's that Oftentimes, our faith, like what we believe about God or what we believe about Jesus, faith often deteriorates as circumstances deteriorate. Have you ever noticed that? There's like this direct correlation between the circumstances of our lives and, and, and whether things are going good or things are going bad. If things are going good, our faith tends to, to escalate. And as things go bad, it's almost like in direct comparison, our faith begins to deteriorate with it. And what's really kind of interesting about this is, is as we kind of walk through what we've just walked through, what we're kind of coming out of, um, for some of us, this is really um, applicable. This could be where we are now. It could be what, we're, what we've experienced over the last few weeks. It could be maybe even what we're still experiencing now, that our faith deteriorates as our circumstances continue to deteriorate. And as things continue to go bad, our faith begins to wane. And, and we're not really sure why, but it's almost like at some point, fear begins to take over. And do you know what fear does when it begins to take over? Fear turns us into fortune tellers. And I know what you're thinking. What? Fortune? Why? Because as fear begins to take over, it, it allows us to predict the future, that the future doesn't look good, that the future isn't bright, that the future is bad, and that no one's in control of the future, especially God. It turns us into fortune tellers. Fear causes us to look at the future and, and expect the worst and, and, and doubt the best and, and really to believe that no one's in absolute control. And after what we've been through and, and maybe what we're experiencing now, it's easy for us to associate with this line of thinking. But I, I believe as we've been kind of walking through the life of Peter, if, if Peter were here, Peter would have something to say. And I know I, I have something to say, but I don't have the moral authority to say, you know what, just move on and trust God and it's, it's all going to be okay. I'm kind of going through this with you. But for somebody who's, who's gone through something similar in his own life, he would look at you and, say, and he would say something very significant. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. We're in part five of our series called You're Not Far. And as we say every single week, this is a story that should have died in Nero's Rome. It's the story of Jesus of Nazareth as told by Simon Peter. Simon didn't write it, though. Simon dictated it to his travel companion later on in his life to a man named John Mark. And John wrote it, or John Mark, rather, he wrote the gospel. Uh, but when he was writing it, he wasn't writing the Bible. He was writing the life and the experiences of Peter, of Peter's life with Jesus, of his time with Jesus. And the story of Peter, the story of Jesus with Peter, it comes to us as the gospel of Mark. And Peter tells us over and over again, at the very beginning, he actually opens up his gospel this way. He tells us over and over again that his time with Jesus, it all kind of centered around this one thought, that every time Jesus preached, every time he taught, he kind of came back to this one thought over and over and over again. And here's the thought. <clears throat> the time has come. Everything you've been waiting for is leading to this point. The kingdom of God has come near because the king is in town. And, and what do we do? He said our only reaction to this is to repent and to believe the good news. And as we talked about, repent is usually seen in this negative light. But in this instance, it's seen in a positive light. To repent means to, to turn our life from, to, to, to move away from the old that was and turn our life towards the new that is, this new that Jesus is bringing, to, to fully invest, to fully dive in and allow what Jesus has brought to us to kind of wrap around us and, and envelop us. 
Previously, on You're Not Far, Jesus, he's up, uh, up north around the, uh, the area of Galilee. He's been teaching up here for a while. They, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they send up some, some like religious leaders, a little delegation, if you will, to kind of in- investigate Jesus. And Jesus kind of hammers them, and he calls them a bunch of hypocrites, and then he sends them packing for Jerusalem. So we're, we've showed you this map before. Jerusalem's down here. This is the kind of the center of their religion, of Judaism. They've sent people up here to the area of Galilee and Capernaum, and this is where Jesus is. Jesus is up here, and he's up here for a while teaching, and what we're going to see today is he's going to make his way back down to Jerusalem for the celebration called the Passover, but before he goes down, he's actually going to go up. He heads up, and something really significant happens here. We're going to jump right in, but like I said, we got a lot, a lot of scripture to cover, but there is so much that happens in these few chapters that is so significant to Jesus and to his ministry. If you feel like you're missing it, please let me encourage you, like I do all the time. Read the Gospels. Read the Gospel of Mark because the story of Jesus is absolutely amazing. We're going to hit some high points today. Immediately, Jesus and his followers, after they send the the religious leaders kind of packing for Jerusalem, they pack up and the crowd, there's always a crowd, they kind of follow him. They start heading north and they head up to the area of Caesarea Philippi. So here's where our story picks up. Here's what the text says. He then began to teach them, and this is that the Son of Man himself must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that they must be killed and after that rise on three days. And this was very confusing to them because when he's up in Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples a question. He says, hey, hey guys, what are people saying about me? Who do people think that I am? And they say, well, you know, some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're John the Baptist reincarnated. He said, oh, that's really interesting. But what about you? You've traveled with me. You've spent time with me. Who do you say that I am? And I imagine in this moment, all the disciples look to the outspoken disciple, the one who speaks up. And Peter kind of addresses Jesus for, for the whole group of disciples. He says, well, Jesus, we believe that you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. And Jesus said, exactly right. And on that, on that statement, on that foundation, I will build my ecclesia, my gathering, my congregation, what we call the church. And then he begins to head back down, and he, and he covers this teaching. And they're thinking, but Jesus, this doesn't, this doesn't line up like you're the Messiah. You just said you were the Messiah. I mean, as a matter of fact, when I called you the Messiah, something really unique happened. You didn't deny it. I mean, imagine somebody coming, coming up to me and saying, Jim, we believe you're the son of God. It's like, well, thank you very much. I know I'm good, but not that good. You might be getting carried away a little bit. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, we believe you're the Messiah. And he says, you're exactly right. And on that foundation, I'm going to build my church. But if you're the Messiah, What's all this talk of suffering and rejection and, and, and dying? Like, this doesn't line up. His disciples, his, the crowd, they're, they're, they're confused. And they look at Peter and they're like, Peter, what does he mean by all this? Peter's the oldest of the group and the outspoken of the group. So Peter, maybe concerned that he's going to lose the crowd, maybe concerned that the disciples are going to get really nervous and kind of walk away. Peter confronts Jesus. Peter actually takes Jesus aside. And he begins to rebuke him. Imagine this, rebuking Jesus. He pulls him aside and he's basically, hey, Jesus, like, you've done some amazing things. You teach some amazing things, but like, shut up. You're scaring the kids. And what does Jesus do? He turns around and I find this really interesting. But when Jesus turned around, he looked at his disciples. He didn't look at Peter. He looked at his disciples, which to me indicates that perhaps this question was kind of brought on by the disciples, not just Peter. It's almost like Jesus knew. You guys kind of put Peter up to this. He's the outspoken one, but you're all feeling this way. You don't want me talking about this. So he looks at his disciples and he rebukes Peter. And this is what he says to Peter. If you grew up in church, I'm sure you've heard this. He rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human 
concerns. In other words, he's saying, Peter, disciples, what you're hoping for is a kingdom of this world, and that's not my kingdom. That's not what I've come to establish. I've come to establish a different kind of kingdom. We've talked about this, a kingdom where everything is flipped upside down, a kingdom of conscience, a kingdom of love, a kingdom where the king dies for his subjects, and he doesn't ask the subjects to die for him. Peter, it's completely different. That's not my kind of kingdom, and I'm not going to be that kind of king. If that's what you're looking for, you signed up for the wrong thing. But not so with me, and not so with you if you're going to be my follower. That is not how we are going to do things. And then to emphasize this point, he kind of calls out to the crowd, and he calls the crowd to him and his disciples to him, and he says something that I'm sure you've heard before, but there's so much meaning in what he's saying here. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple... Whoever wants to be my follower, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see, we read by that because the cross is is almost a little bit trivialized. But when he's making this declaration to these first century followers, this was real. This wasn't something they thought about. This was something they had seen. They understood a crucifixion. We've said this before. They smelled the crucifixion. They probably have lost a loved one to crucifixion. What Jesus is saying is, guys, if you're going to follow me, this isn't going to be a parade anymore. This isn't, this isn't a, a, a festival anymore. This isn't like high times. If you're going to follow me, you need to be prepared to suffer. As a matter of fact, you're all going to suffer. You need to take up your cross and follow me. And the disciples, again, I imagine this moment, they're just, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the king we've been waiting for. You're going to kick out the Romans and take over. What's all this talk of suffering? And Jesus goes on, and he makes this, this incredible statement that it kind of masked behind this statement is this extraordinary invitation. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Or in other words, we're all going to die. Like, you can try really hard. You can take all the right supplements and do all the right exercises and eat all the right foods, but eventually, like, here's a spoiler alert. You're all going to die. We're all at some point going to lose our life, no matter how hard you... You can spend your whole life trying to preserve your life, but at the end of it, you'll have nothing to show for yourself but yourself. You can spend all of your energy working to save yourself, but he says, at the end, you're all going to lose it anyway. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And then he goes on. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will ultimately save it. And hidden in this kind of ominous statement is this extraordinary invitation. He's saying, guys, you've been invited to be a part of something. You've been invited to do something that the world's not going to understand. But that has, has so much meaning and so much value. You've been invited to follow me, to pick up your cross and follow me. And yes, you might lose your life, but you're all going to lose it anyway. But if you follow me, if you're willing to give up your life for me and for the gospel, at the end, you will have something significant to show for it. So what choice do you want? The disciples had a choice. Peter had a choice. Do I want to continue to be a fisherman up in Galilee and just spend the rest of my days fishing and die an old man in my bed with nothing to show for it, no significance? Or do I want to follow Jesus? And yes, I might lose my life. But what I do in that gap is deeply significant and could change the world. You see, it's like Jesus was kind of telling his disciples, what I'm hoping you would do here is live your life with a purpose, on purpose. You see, everybody ends up somewhere in life, but it's only the intentional people that end up somewhere on purpose. 
Peter, what do you want? Do you want to live with some intentionality? Do you want to live for a purpose? Or do you just want to live and eventually die? Peter, the disciples, they all had a decision to make. Will we preserve our lives? Or will we give up our lives for Jesus? And Peter, once again, is faced with this incredible decision, fear. Fear always invites us. It always invites us to follow the path of self-preservation. We've seen that in our own lives. As soon as fear creeps up, doesn't our first reaction is, what do I have to do to keep me safe? What do I have to do to preserve myself or my family or my future or my finances? And the truth is, what we just experienced in the past year, the future has changed, right? The future isn't guaranteed. Our financial future, our family future, it's all, it's all changed. And Peter's looking at this moment with Jesus, thinking uh, with the foresight, everything changes here. If I follow, I'm willingly giving up my life. And, and according to Jesus, I'm going to face some suffering and some persecution. But my life will mean something, and it'll, it'll, it'll do something for the world. Or I can go back to what I know and eventually lose my life anyway and have nothing to show for it but myself. And every morning, if we decide to follow Jesus, we're faced with the same question I, I told you last week, the same question I asked you, the same question we ask over and over again. If you're going to follow me, Every morning you wake up and you have to answer this question. What does love require of me? What is Jesus wanting me to do today? And if we live with that kind of purpose, the world changes. I mean, as a matter of fact, Peter says yes. The disciples say yes. They follow Jesus. And that's why we're telling their story. And it's why their story is so worth telling. Because they said yes. They were willing to face fear, to give up their life to follow their master. So Jesus wraps up this little discussion, and now they head south from Caesarea Philippi, past Galilee, past Capernaum, past the area they had done all this teaching, and they start heading right to Jerusalem. Passover's coming in just a few, just a few days, and, and they want to get there, and they want to celebrate with Jesus. And in the back of their minds, all, the disciples are kind of thinking, this is it, this is the moment, right? We've, we've seen him do these amazing things. He's walked on water. He's, he's healed people. He's taught some radical things. He's going to go, and he's going to make himself. He's going to proclaim himself the Messiah, our king. The anticipation is building. Energy is, is just kind of building. They're following along with Jesus. This is the moment. They're on their way to Jerusalem, and this is where our story picks up. They're on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and Peter kind of lets us know that like he wasn't leading the way before. So why is it so important that he's leading the way now? Because it's almost like Jesus has this urgency. Like, hey, guys, we're not going to stop in a village. We're not going to stop over there. I've got to get to Jerusalem. I have an appointment that I can't miss, and the whole world is depending on it. It's like there's this urgency in Jesus now not to just kind of linger and do ministry, but to get to Jerusalem and to get to Jerusalem quick. So Jesus is leading the way with his ragtag group of followers and the crowd, and there's hundreds of people and energy's building as he's going along and he's making his way to Jerusalem. And, and then he does what he often does. This happens now for three times. He takes his disciples away. He takes the 12 aside and he begins to tell them again, this is what's going to happen. And, and I don't know if you've ever had this, this instance, if you're a parent, where you tell your kids something and then you ask them a day later and they have no idea what you said, so you tell them again a day later. No, like this is Jesus with his disciples. Three times now he's telling them, here's what's going to happen when we, when we go to Jerusalem. And then for some reason they get to Jerusalem and they're all surprised when it happens. He reminds them once again, hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem, right? We're headed to there. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. And now he gets a little more graphic in his description of what's about to happen to him. He says, these people, the chief priests and teachers of the law, they will condemn me to death. They will hand me over to the Gentiles who will mock me and spit on me, flog me and kill me. 
And just like that, Jesus turns and continues his journey. And I imagine if I'm one of the disciples, I am utterly confused. But you just said you were the Messiah. You just equated yourself to the Son of God. The Son of God doesn't die. The Son of God doesn't get spit on. The Son of God, like, this isn't lining up. What, 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 I've, what I've thought, what, what I've expected of Jesus, and what I'm experiencing with Jesus, there's this gap forming for the disciples and for Peter, and it's building, and it continues to build to the climax of our story. Jesus continues to head south toward Jerusalem. As he's making his way, he's, he's gathered by, by the crowd. You know, we said every, every chapter of Mark except two, the crowd, the crowd. The crowd begins to follow. There's these Galilean pilgrims who are on their way down to the Passover to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, just like they're doing. And they hear of Jesus. They were in Galilee. They, they probably saw Jesus teach or saw one of his healings. And they begin to gather around, and the crowd just grows, and there's this energy. And they're all expecting the same thing. They're all expecting Jesus to make his way in and proclaim himself king. There's been these rumors floating around. In another gospel, there's a story that along this journey, Jesus stops, and he, and he, he raises this well-known citizen, Lazarus, his friend from the dead. It's like, Jesus can do that? Apparently, Jesus can do that. And then Jesus, earlier in Mark, as he's on this journey, he heals this blind man, Bartimaeus. And now Bartimaeus, this, this man who was blind and everybody knew, he's now in the crowd and he's following Jesus and he can see. So there's this, there's this excitement. There's this, this is it. This is happening. He's making his way into the city. And many people, the text tells us, spread their cloaks on the road while others spread their branches they have cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed along shouted behind Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us. Save us. Jesus, this is our expectation. You are here to save us. And to save us from who? From the Romans. To make us a sovereign state, to make us free once again, to be our king. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they get really political. And they say, blessed is the coming, of our, <clears throat> is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And the disciples are just euphoric. This is it. This is why we followed. This is why we were willing to, to persevere and to give up our life to follow Jesus. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Jesus, he kind of makes his way through the crowd. There's, there's palms and branches and cloaks, and he's on a donkey, and it's, it's just like, this is it. And he makes his way right into Jerusalem, and he doesn't stop at the gate. He goes right into the temple, and they're thinking, this is it. And what does he do? Jesus went into the temple courts, and he just looks around at everything. I mean, this triumphant entry, and he just kind of walks up and looks around, maybe looks at his watch. It's a little late. I'm going to go. Turns around and walks out. Literally, that's, walks in, looks around, takes maybe an observance of everything, says, ah, it's too late, and he heads out to Bethany with the 12. Bethany's about two miles outside the city. They head out there for the night, and I'm sure the disciples think, what in the world was that? Jesus, I thought, I thought this was the moment. They get up early the next morning, and Jesus says, hey, pack up. We're going back to Jerusalem. And now they're okay, this is it. Like, this is the moment. This is what we've been waiting for. Sure enough, something happens, but it's not the it they think is going to happen. He walks in, and you know the story. If you were raised in church, this is a story people love to tell. Jesus walks up, and he doesn't proclaim himself the Messiah. He gets angry. 
And he begins to flip over tables and he, he cracks whips and he chases out the money changers. And he, he makes this declaration to everyone there that they made a mockery of the house of prayer, of the house of God. They've turned it into this corrupt commercial enterprise. And he is furious. And the religious leaders and the teachers of the law, they are furious with him. And the disciples are furious with him. Because they're all thinking, Jesus, we need friends. We need them to chief priests. We need the religious leaders on our side. And you keep driving them out. What's wrong with you? As a matter of fact, the text tells us that the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they now began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the crowd was amazed. And what were they amazed at? Not his miracles. I mean, he's done many. No, they were amazed at his teaching because they had never heard teaching. They had never seen a man respond the way Jesus responded. There was something different about Jesus that they had never seen before. Jesus leaves the city. He returns to the temple the next day. Leaders are there, and the leaders through the night, I'm sure, they they spent their time kind of gathering with their group and and preparing how are we going to get Jesus, how are we going to separate him from the crowd so we can, you know, arrest him and crucify him or execute him. we got to get Jesus away from the crowd. So so let's create a question that's going to be so bad, no matter what Jesus answers, the crowd's going to hate him. And then we can separate him from the crowd and we can arrest him. So they they spend all night toiling. What can we ask? What can we ask? What can we ask? They come up with this great question. We're going to spend some time because... I think there's something really significant in how Jesus answers this question and then what happens right after he answers the question. <clears throat> they spend all this time, he's back in the temple, he's teaching, and they show up. It was really interesting. This time, they, they want to work him over, so they're buttering him up a little bit. Hey, Jesus, you're, you're so well-respected, and the crowd loves you, and you, you, don't, you don't fear people. You don't fear what people think of you. You're, just, you're a man of character and integrity. And I'm sure all the disciples are thinking, of course he is. Look, it's Jesus, of course. Great, will you answer a question for us? chief priests and the teachers of the law <clears throat> and the elders look for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken a parable against him. So they come up to him and they basically confront him with, with this question. <clears throat> you can go to the next one for me. They were afraid of the crowd, so they left him. They went away. They come up with a question. And here's the question. <clears throat> Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? And here's a little explanation on this imperial tax. This was a poll tax that every Judean Jew paid. It didn't matter how old you were, how young you were. It didn't matter if you were male or female. It didn't matter if you had a job or you didn't have a job. This was a tax that every person, every citizen, every Jewish person had to pay. Is it right for us to pay this tax or not pay this tax? And here's basically what they're doing. They're pitting him up so that no matter what he answers, it's a bad answer. No matter what he's going to do, there's no winning in this. Everyone had to pay this, and everyone hated paying this. This coincided with, with kind of the Romans taking over this area. So all the Jews hated it because it reminded them that we're not free, that we're not a sovereign state, that there's this, there's this kind of tyrannical rule over us. They didn't want to pay this tax. And if Jesus were to say yes this, if Jesus says yes, then all of the Jewish patriots would hate him because they don't like this tax. But if he says no, then the Romans hate him. Because he's standing against the the leadership, the government. It's Passover, so there's already all of this anti-Semitism. There's already all of this this frustration. There's already all of this anger. And I'm sure in this moment, they're thinking, we got him. We trapped him. I I wonder if when Peter's telling the story, he's even thinking, I thought they had him. I thought they backed him into a corner, and I just, what's he going to do? They they did it. They trapped Jesus. There's no way he can answer this and, and get out of it. Jesus turns around and he faces the Pharisees, the men asking the questions. And I, I imagine for a moment, he probably reaches him if he had pockets, one pocket, he pulls it, it's empty. And 
guys, I, I'm sorry. I don't have any, any money on me. I don't have any, any money on me. I don't, have, I don't have any coins. Would you bring me a denarius? Would you bring me a denarius and let me look at it? And what do they do? They think they have them. They're excited. The Jews are required to pay this tax with a denarius, which is a Roman form of currency. And he's, he's calling them out on this. And as soon as he does, I think the Pharisees, there's this, this little twist. Like, oh, we have him. Oh, wait a minute. What's he doing? Where's he about to go with this? Here's what the denarius looked like. And here's why this is so significant. <clears throat> a picture stamped on the denarius is that of a Caesar. And, and, and that, the, the inscription basically says he is the son of, of a god, which is deeply offensive to the Jews. The, the back of the coin has, has another inscription on it, which basically says that he's the leader of the Roman religion, a false religion. And these men, the, these religious leaders, these Pharisees in the temple come to him with a, a coin with the, the stamp of, of Caesar on it. And they're thinking, like, wait a minute, this, this doesn't line up. This doesn't make sense. The crowd's beginning to turn like, this isn't okay. You see, in, in this religion, they, ha- they had a rule. It was one of the big rules. It was one of the, the, the big ten. You can't make an image of anything that you would worship, of anything that you would give praise to. You can't have an image of God in their temples, in their houses, in their businesses. There were no images. There was no representation of their God because their God couldn't be, be put in the form of a man. You shouldn't have anything that you looked at, they would say, that you could worship. And here are these men, the religious leaders, in their house of worship with an image of a man who's declaring himself God. I don't have a Daenerys. Do you have a Daenerys? And I think as they're getting the coin, they're beginning to think, oh, no. You see, to us, it's, it's insignificant. The story moves past. But to the religious people, with one question, it's like, that's it. Game over. Mic drop. Jesus won already. Sheepishly, reluctantly, they come to him. I, I guess. They bring him a coin. <clears throat> they bring him the coin. I, I imagine Jesus begins to look at the coin. Here's a really interesting tidbit of information. This kind of shows you why they hated this so much. About five years before this, um, Pilate, who's kind of the governor of this area, he brings in these Roman shields with an emblem on the front that is the picture of Julius Caesar. He didn't even put them in the temple. He just brought them into the city. And the people revolted. They were so angry that someone would bring in an image of a god that, that they just, they kind of rioted. They stopped working. They sat in the streets. They, they stopped like, taking care of their crops. Like it was it. Pilate, who loved to like rub the, the nose of the Jews and the fact that you guys aren't free and I'm your rulers, like stupid suckers. He, he was like, I have no other choice but to remove the image. That's how much they hated the idea of this image who represented a false god to them. Do you have a coin? Well, yeah, I have a coin. Bring me the coin. They bring him the coin and then Jesus asks this unreal question. Who's, whose image is this? And everyone knows. No one's caught by surprise. But immediately, there's a pit in the Pharisee's stomach. Oh, God, he got us. He, he did it again. Who, whose image? Who, who, whose picture uh, is, is on this coin? And he asks another question. Whose inscription is this? And the Pharisees have no option. They have to answer. But they know that when they answer, Jesus has already won. So sheepishly, they work up, they work up a little bit of momentum, and they say, well, it's Caesar's. You say, huh, interesting. You have that in your pocket at the temple. Hmm. Maybe you should just give to Caesar's what's Caesar's. And give to God what's God's. And they were amazed. 
even the Pharisees and the religious teachers, they were amazed at Jesus. I'm sure in that moment, Peter is kind of standing behind him like he always does, the type A guy, like, in your face! You thought you had him, you didn't have him. Next up were the Sadducees. The Sadducees, as you probably have heard me say before, they're a group of religious people that didn't believe in the afterlife. They thought there was, there, was no, there was no existence, there was no evidence to support of afterlife, and Jesus believing it was just nonsense. So they come up with this whole fabricated story to try to trick Jesus. They basically say, there's this woman, she marries a man, the man dies, and it's the custom that the next brother in line, that her brother-in-law would marry her. Well, that brother dies, and then it keeps going, and that brother dies, and then that brother, and it's like, by the time she gets to heaven, she's had seven husbands. So Jesus, when she gets to heaven, like, who's her husband? Does she have seven? And then Jesus retorts with, with this backlash that, like, we, again, we read through the Bible so quick because we're not paying attention to the details. He insults them so deeply. These are religious leaders. And he basically says this, have you ever read your Bible? Have you even read the words of Moses? You are so clearly mistaken. And then he takes this verb tense. You should really, you should read Mark. It's amazing. He takes this verb tense and he flips it back in them to show them how ludicrous and how infantile their thinking is and how they're absolutely wrong. And, and of course, at this point, no one dares ask him any more questions. Nobody can trick Jesus. Nobody can work him over. They're now scared and they want him gone, but they don't know how to do it because the crowd loves him. So here's Jesus in the temple, right around Jerusalem. He's made his way up here from his ministry, and now he's back down here. The Pharisees know the kind of guy he is because they sent that religious delegation, and he kind of, you know, <clears throat> called a bunch of hypocrites and sent them packing, and now he's here, and he's setting up shop, and it's Passover, and all these emotions are heightened. Jesus is on his way out from the temple of Jerusalem. He's on his way out, and his disciples, they ask him this question, and they say, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings they're referring to the temple, to, the, to this plaza, to this gorgeous structure that was built. Herod had spent so much money building this, this magnificent building for the Jews. I mean, we think of like 500-pound rocks. No, some of the rocks built for this structure were 500 tons. I mean, they were just these massive. He built, made it like earthquake-proof. No earthquake would shake this. No earthquake would rock. This was like a beautiful, massive structure. Jesus, what massive stones. What a, a huge building. And then Jesus, he, he, he makes this this incredible statement. He says, do you see these, these great buildings? And I'm sure they're thinking, yeah, we just pointed your attention to them. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And the disciples are thinking, do you see how big those are? No one's throwing those. You must mean fallen down. He said, no, no, no. Every stone will be thrown down. Here's a picture of what they're looking at. This is a 37 acre temple plaza. He said, every one of these stones, every single one will be thrown down. Not one will be left on top of each other. This is the, the, the plaza. This is, what, this is just this gorgeous, massive structure. Every single one. The disciples are probably thinking to themselves, Jesus, no one could do that. That would take an army Later, Jesus is on the, the Temple Mount with his disciples. They make his way out of the building, and <clears throat> they're on the, the, the Temple Mount now. The Mount of Olives are kind of looking back over the temple, and maybe they're having a meal, and one of the disciples come up again and asks him, Jesus, what did you mean by that? that, that it would be torn down and not one stone would be left standing on each other. I, I don't understand Jesus. And what follows, I absolutely love this, what, what follows is one of the most remarkable 
just completely like unexpected and, and absolutely verifiable prophecy that anyone is given at any point in time. Jesus now predicts the destruction of the temple, which to them is absolutely ludicrous. Who could destroy it? And sure enough, about 50 years later, in, in the year 70 AD, the Roman legion begins a, their invasion into the city of Jerusalem. And it takes about four months to break through that wall, to get into the temple. And when they finally get in after a four-month siege, they are angry. And they burn anything that will be burned. And then Titus, who's kind of leading this siege, he then forces the Jews through safe slave labor to push every single stone off the edge of the Temple Mount. There's this valley at the edge of the Temple Mount off the plaza. He forced them to take every single stone and throw them down. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, you could actually see the stones that look like this being thrown down from the side. Every single stone, every word Jesus said, utterly true. And why is this so important? Because Jesus made a declaration earlier. Guys, that's going away. And something better is here. The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. It's near. Something greater than the temple has arrived. The temple was the old way, but the temple is now obsolete because I'm introducing something new. Don't go back to what was old. Embrace this new thing, this, this new kingdom, this new way of living. Embrace what's new. Don't go back to that. There's something better here for you. And it's portable and, and, and it's, it's different than it was. And it's better than it was. As a matter of fact, it's something that would make the you beside you way more relevant and way more sacred than even the temple in Jerusalem. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. All that's left is for him to ratify this, this new arrangement that he came to ratify. All that's left is for him to establish the new covenant. This arrangement between God and the human race. As you remember, they're in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They've been there for this reason. So the disciples come up to him at Passover is just a few days away. They come up to him and say, hey, Jesus, the, the Passover feast, Master, the Passover feast is just two days away. Master, what, what do we do? Where do you want us to go to kind of set up this Passover meal? Where should we go to set up a Passover meal so we can eat? Little did they know Jesus has kind of already made these preparations in the background. Maybe he did it in secret. Maybe he just did it through a miracle. Who knows? But Jesus instructs me, hey, I want you to head into town. I want you to find a guy. There's going to be this man who's holding a jar of water. You follow him, and he's going to lead you to the place where we're going to have the Passover meal, and the preparations will be made there. And I'm sure they're thinking, well, that's a little unusual. Like, and we just kind of revise it. Well, that's no big deal at all. But how do we find the man holding the jar of water in this city? It's a big city. I mean, how many men are going to be carrying jars of water in the city? Here's the answer, none. Because in this city, in this culture, it was a woman's job. They walk in and sure enough, just like Jesus said, there's a man carrying a jar of water. They follow this man to the house to make preparations for Passover. The text tells us that when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. Why do you have to wait till evening? Because every time he showed up in the day, there were crowds of people screaming and yelling, wanting to be healed, wanting to be taught. So you had to wait till it was dark, till they could get into the city at night, almost sneak their way in. It's safe. They go in and they begin to have this, this Passover meal. Peter must have thought, surely, surely this is it. We're just two days away now. This is it. It's going to happen. And it happens, but it's very different than any of them expected. While they were eating, you, you've heard this before, Jesus took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. 
And he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take it. They take the bread, and just about to eat it, and then Jesus continues. He says, take it, for this is my body. And I'm sure they're thinking, what? That's kind of gross, Jesus. I, I don't know, but you're our master. We'll, we'll follow. They put it in their mouth, and they're eating. And then Jesus, in the same way, he takes the cup. And when he had given thanks for it, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And now it was too late. They had all drinking. And, and then he said, this is my blood. Wait a minute, Jesus. Are you doing what we think you're doing? Are you making the Passover about you? He goes on, this is the blood of my covenant. What covenant? It takes God to establish a covenant. In God, it's between God and people. So, so who's this covenant? Between? Are you saying you're God? And who's this covenant between Jesus? It's the blood of my covenant, <clears throat> which is poured out for many. This covenant's for the world. This covenant is for everybody who lived and everybody who will live. And I imagine the disciples who are really excited about Jesus making himself Messiah are thinking, Jesus, we don't need another covenant. We need a new kingdom. We need a new king. I feel like you're toying with us a little bit. We, we, we followed you. You told us to, to give up our life and take up our cross. And now you're telling us about a covenant. Like, like what about this new thing that's coming? I thought you were going to make yourself Messiah. I thought you were going to do what only you could do. They continue to eat their meal. And, you know, they're excited to be at, at the Passover meal and eating together and eating with their friends and eating in Jerusalem. But Jesus seems disturbed. As the story goes on, you, you know how it goes. They wrap up meal. They sing a hymn and they make their way out to the Garden of Gethsemane and they start praying. And, and, and again, they're praying and they're falling asleep, but Jesus isn't falling asleep. He's disturbed and he's sweating drops of blood. And there's, there's something up with Jesus. What's wrong? Off in the distance, they can hear some noise. And then slowly, the torches begin to become visible. And leading the pack of torches is Judas, who was one of the 12, leading the temple guard to arrest Jesus. As the story goes, you know Peter is violent and angry. And he takes a sword and he slices one of the temple guards, one of the high priest's servants' ears off. My guess is he's aiming for Judas. Then Judas ducked. And things begin to erupt. And Jesus just kind of speaks and quiets everyone down. Whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. A am I leading a rebellion? I is that what you've done? Like, I, I haven't done anything. You come at me with swords and clubs to capture me. I don't understand. Where did this go wrong? Every day I was with you. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts. And you did nothing to arrest me. I was there the whole week. I spoke to you. You did nothing. Why are you coming at me now with swords and clubs? And then Peter makes a decision that he will regret for the rest of his life. In the moment where it's heated, in the moment where, where the, the fear begins to take over and his faith begins to deteriorate, Peter makes the second worst decision of his life. Facing the temple guard, Jesus about to turn himself over. Fear beginning to build and faith beginning to deteriorate. A gap forms between what Peter knows of Jesus, what he's seen and what he expects of Jesus and what he's experiencing with Jesus right now. And as that gap built and built over the last few days, it reached its climax. Jesus faced with the temple guard. Peter said, all of us. I'm ashamed to even admit this. And I think as he's telling this to Mark later on, Mark's probably saying, Peter, are you sure you want me to write this in? Peter's saying, yes, because it actually happened. Every one of us deserted him and fled.
And no wonder. Because it was over. Jesus was no king. Jesus was no Messiah. The Messiah can't be arrested. The Messiah can't be tried and crucified. It's over. What else would I do? There'd be no kingdom. And in the moment where faith deteriorates the most, what happened to Peter is typically what happens to us. We assume the worst about God. We assume that God has forgotten. We assume that God is no longer in control. And faith deteriorated as the circumstances deteriorated. See, what's really interesting is is that as this happens to us, Faith is almost instantaneously replaced with fear. Like, like Peter, we, we have all had these moments of, of our life where we believed and we believed and we believed and then something happened, some random circumstance of life, some report from the doctor, some, some disease that takes the world over, some bad news from your employer. And our faith is shaken so much so that one blow, and it's like, is God even real? We become fortune tellers, very confident of what the future is and where the future is going, and even more confident that no one's in control, especially God. And you and me, we've all been put in that position before. Some of us maybe are in that position right now. See, but if we were to ask Peter, Peter, what did, what did you do? Look at my life. What would you do? Peter would look at each one of us and say, I get it. I was there. Fear overcame me. Don't do what I did. Don't desert him. Don't cut and run. This was the second biggest mistake of my life that led me to my first biggest mistake, and we'll hit that one next week. Don't do it. Don't bail. You see, in that moment, I I was fully, fully confident that God is not near. But I couldn't have been more wrong. God was doing something in my life. He was working behind the scenes. He was more near and more present and more active than he had ever been. But the fear blinded me. And it caused me to run. Don't run. Don't, don't do what I did. Don't bail on Jesus. You see, I, I couldn't have been more wrong. It's not that God was far. It's that God is near, which means you are not far. You are one decision away. You are one turn away. You are one belief away from saying, Jesus, I will follow. Jesus, I, I, will, I will give up. I will sacrifice. I won't preserve. I will go after you. I will give whatever it takes. I want my life to be significant. I want my life to matter. I, I don't want just nothing. I want you and whatever you have for me. I don't want fear to run me. I don't want fear to take over. See, but what happens next, it changes everything. It changes everything that's standing in the way from what you believe and what you hope and and what you expect from God and what you experience from God. And when that's removed, 
Life changes. We're going to hit one that one next week. So don't miss the conclusion of our series. You are not far. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this incredible narrative. God, it, it's not a story. It's, it's a life. It's an experience, God, that, that is so true, God, that it, it doesn't just apply thousands of years ago to a first century culture, God. It applies to each and every one of us. It applies to me right now, in my circumstances and in my life. God, it is so easy for us to be overwhelmed by our fear, to be overcome by our circumstances, to allow our faith to, to, to begin to deteriorate, Lord, till we would get to the place and say, God isn't in control. God isn't even here. But Lord, we know nothing is further from the truth. I pray for each of us, Lord, wherever we are with our struggle. Maybe we're coming out of, of a situation. Maybe we're facing it now. Maybe we're in the middle of it, Lord. Maybe it's something that's going to come in a period of time. I pray that all of us, Lord, when we face fear, our reaction wouldn't be like Peter, to cut and run, to bail, God, to, to doubt you. God, it would be to hold on and to realize that in those moments, you are more active and you are more near than you've ever been. God, I pray you would give us the wisdom to see that and the courage to take a step in your direction, to pick up our cross, to follow you. God, I thank you for every person that's here. Lord, I know this past year has been a struggle. God, one that's been overwhelmed with doubt, one that's been overwhelmed with fear. But God, I pray that the message today, the message of Peter and the disciples who lost fear but came back that the very men, God, God, who this story was built on, whose story we're telling about how they ran so quickly, but later they're the very men who would give up everything to bring that story to us. I pray that would inspire us to believe, inspire us to once again have faith, to not doubt, but to realize you are here with us even now. I thank you for that, and I give you all glory and honor. Jesus, help us to live that way even now. In your name I pray. Amen.